everyone. Welcome back to an all new episode of the 20% podcast. This is the podcast that brings you tips and tricks from industry professionals across all industries that you could implement in your current job today. I'm your host, Tyler Meckis. This week's guest needs little introduction, and I'm really excited to introduce this week's guest, JC Pollard. I had a conversation with JC recently on a LinkedIn live show, and I wanted to share this conversation on the 20% podcast as well. In this episode, we discuss JC's career transitions, what it's like to work at Gong, how to consistently overachieve your quota, personalized email at scale, a cold calling mentality, the importance of physical gifting, and so much more. Please enjoy this week's episode with JC Pollard. JC, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. I always get all blushful during the intros like that, but very kind. I appreciate the kind words. Now, so excited to have you on today, man. As, as I just mentioned, you have an awesome background and, and we're going to be diving. We have a full plate for today's show. And for those, for those in the audience listening as well, please um, don't hesitate to reach out, ask JC questions. And ultimately as well, we'd love to see where you're, where you're calling in from the show or, or not call, nobody's calling in here, uh, where, where you're watching the show today. So today's agenda, as we were just running through JC, we're going to be talking about your career history, your career transitions, what it's like to work at Gong navigating the ins and outs of being an SDR and what that move was like to a- to being an AE, constantly overachieving, personalized email at scale, and so much more. You ready to get this thing kicked off? Yeah, it's a full plate. Let's go. Awesome. So number one, as we'd like to do in all of these shows, really want to start off with some of the early years. Because if, if you've ever watched the 20% podcast or ever checked out Keeping the Lights On, I'm a true believer that, we, that the, the previous experience that we have sets the tone for our future success. So JC, obviously, you know, you, you had some early experiences uh, in your career at Sixth Sense and doing some personal training. But before we dive in there, what were you like as a kid? And, and ultimately, uh, where was some of your motivations? What are some of those early jobs like? Start from there. Yeah, all, going all the way back. Um, I was super into sports as a kid. That was like my thing was uh, loved baseball, obsessed with baseball, loved football. Uh, the trend line, though, was just hyper competitive. And I grew up, you know loving the the team environment being really competitive uh, and I've always been a hard worker in that sense and so that was kind of my childhood was like mostly sports oriented and so my whole life I'm like I want to work in sports I have to work in sports so by no means was I like six years old dreaming of being a SaaS salesman by uh, by any means but going into college my brother was actually the VP of sales at Sixth Sense and so I was able to get a SDR internship at Sixth Sense prior to even entering college so that was my first exposure to the fact that tech sales was even a world that existed and i had a great time i really enjoyed it but still i was like laser focused like i want to work in sports i have to have a career oriented around sports and so i went to university of oregon started personal training i ran our personal training department i prepared for law school i took the lsat i got into a ton of law schools all with the intent and the laser focus on like i'm going to be a sports agent like all I cared about, tunnel vision. And then I landed my little dream internship for sports agency. It was an MLB agency in Beverly Hills. We represented like Yasiel Puig, Hunter Pence, some really big names and full transparency, like absolutely hated every moment of the internship. Did not really like the lifestyle that I saw out of the sports agents and quickly realized like, oh my gosh, I think it's, it's time to pivot. And so I had a pretty like scary moment of realization, like this thing I've been laser focused on for a decade is not what I want to do anymore. And I was, I was honestly pretty distraught over it, feeling pretty lost. And so I literally printed out my resume as like cringy as that sounds, 
and just like stared at it for a while. <laughs> like, what are the, what's the trend here? Like, what am I good at? Right. And everything I had done in my background, like personal training, I was like selling memberships. I was a VP of uh, our sports business club and my job was to get members. I had a sales internship. I'm like, oh my God, I need to stop running from the fact that I like sales. And so from that point on, I like, okay, let's pursue this thing. And so I ended up landing a BDR role out of college, but that's kind of the, the, the the early on career trajectory. Yeah, no, there. absolutely. Absolutely. JC, that's amazing. There's so many different things I want to jump into there as well. But the first and foremost is it, it probably was really tough to, uh, to, to know like, Hey, this is the thing that I want to do. I'm really focused on this in my life. But then once you're actually in it, good for you, kudos for you for actually taking a step back and realizing this isn't actually what I want because there's so many people that you could have easily went and, and became a lawyer and then you could have been a miserable lawyer or, or switch careers later on. But yeah. focus on what you wanted to do. What's your biggest piece of advice for those who who are trying to figure out what they may want to do, whether they're that kid going, uh, trying to figure out what they want to do with their life, or if you're in a career that you maybe don't like, what kind of recommendations yeah. do you have of really pulling off that Band-Aid? I think that there's a few, a few pieces of advice I have. The first of all is like, don't take... Um, if you pursue something and you quickly realize or don't quickly realize, if you come to the realization like this is not for me, this is not what I want to do, that's not a failure. That's a success because you checked something off the list and now you know that that's not the right thing for you. So kind of reorienting the way that your mindset looks at success versus failure. Like if you pursue something and you go at it and you realize that's not a right fit, that's actually a success because now you know and you, and you did your best and you tried and you can pivot. And that would be the second piece of advice is like, it can be really scary to pivot, but it's so doable. There's so many different career paths, so many different jobs out there. And if you look at a lot of successful people, like they're not doing what they started off doing. Like you can really pivot quickly and, and completely change your lifestyle, your career, all that. And that's what I, mean, I, like I actually, that, yeah. I love diving in there at two to, to looking at other people's careers because you see these like big successful VPs of sales or chief marketing officer or, or whatever, but they started in like IT or they started so, like yeah. somewhere else that you would think, how is there actually a translation there as well? And I, I obviously you studied uh, personal training at Oregon. I studied exercise science. I did my bachelor's and my master's there before realizing that that wasn't the, the necessary career move for me. But it's really interesting because there's a lot of, of, of similarities um, in between your, the previous experience that you had and ultimately what you're doing now. So let's talk, let's stay on the topic of personal training at Oregon, because, um, you know, just from my experience in exercise science, I did a lot of personal training as well from uh, personal, uh, from, from the athlete, I was gonna say professional athletes, but the, the collegiate athlete on, on the D, D1 level to some of the, the staff, the faculty and staff of, of uh, Bloomsburg University uh, trying to, to get some of their business goals or, or their, um, their health goals as well. But the similarity for me, and I want to hear your thoughts on this, JC, is that you, you're selling to these people because you need to understand what is your motivation? What, like, why do you actually want to do this thing in the first place? And what are the main goals and outcomes that you're looking for as a result of doing this? And then you're able to put a plan in place and ultimately provide that solution to how they could achieve those goals. You're not just going in and giving every single person that same playbook or that same thing because it's not hap it, it, it can't happen. And we all know that we can't do that same thing in sales. Now, what ex what from your perspective, what what did that personal training teach you about your career and ultimately look reflecting back, how did that help you as a seller? Yeah, I think in general, every experience you have 
translates into your next experience in some way, shape or form. Like there's always carryover, even if it seems like completely irrelevant to what you're actually doing. Um, I think there's like a, a few different ways that personal training has, has directly applied to sales. First of all, it's, it's all about forming really, really strong relationships. And to your point, it's about doing discovery, honestly, with your clients, like not just, you know, everyone comes in and they say like, I want to lose weight and get abs. It's like somebody coming in to a gong demo and being like, I want call recording, but it's your job as a trainer to be like, okay, why? Right? Like, what is the reason that all of a sudden you're so inspired to lose weight? And maybe it's a wedding or maybe they've got a five-year reunion coming up or whatever, but your job as a trainer is to get to like the root cause, like what's actually going on behind the scenes that is leading to you wanting to achieve this result. So similar to what we do in sales, right? It's like, okay, there's the surface level goal, but what are the real reasons behind that? Let's let's dig deeper and uncover the reality. And then aside from that, I think just a lot of the carryover from fitness and personal training in general, less so from a trainer perspective, more so just from recognizing that like getting the results you want for your clients or for yourself is a long, long, long process about being consistent and putting in the right input, right inputs day after day, week after week, that eventually gets you where you want to go. And that has such a carryover to sales, whether it's SDR, whether it's AE, it's like, I can send 500 emails out today and I'm not going to book 15 meetings tomorrow. But if I consistently put in the right inputs and work on the things that I know will lead to success day after day, the results are going to follow. So I think that mindset that I developed from fitness and personal training has really helped me in sales, like knowing that those results aren't immediate. They take time. But if you can really, really stay consistent and hammer out the proper inputs, I have this like underlying trust that the results will come. And I think that actually comes from my background in personal training. Oh, I love that. And that's so cool. Again, I'm all about how the your your previous skills lay the foundation for your future success. And that mentality and that mindset uh, battle tested you for, for being a really great SDR and being a great AE. And even, uh, I know we're going to talk about it later, navigating some of the tough times that we're seeing right now and in what we potentially see, uh, in the future as well. Now, one more thing before we dive into, um, into, into some of the, uh, the SDR at gong phase is you had this, this sales internship experience where you're generating leads, qualifying and helping BDRs and, and really getting that stage early. What's the, what's your most important piece of advice for, uh, for somebody out there who would like to try to get involved or, or, or yeah. What did Sixth Sense teach you, uh, about your future career and, and maybe about your love of sales? Cause I know this was your, your really your first go at it. And you said, um, that you really loved, uh, love what you're doing there. Yeah. So I think what ended up actually being really impactful about that internship wasn't necessarily like tactical skills I developed because I did that internship before college. So four years later, I didn't really remember how to prospect or what the process was like, but the relationships I built in that internship are now with people who are doing super well in sales. Like Dasha was the, the AE that I supported at the time. And she's now like a director of sales at Sixth Sense. And I think the most impactful thing to come out of the internship was just staying in touch with these people that I built really strong connections with so that when it was time for me to enter the industry, I had an immediate network of people that I could like pick their brain, you know, glean insights on what companies I should look at. A lot of them helped me with the interview process. So it was less so like the tactical stuff I learned more so the relationships I built. But I think the other big takeaway was just exposure to the fact that there is, you know, 
really good money and a lot of success to be had in tech sales. And I think a lot of people don't get exposure to that in college. It's either like you're going into accounting or finance or marketing. I feel like there's not necessarily a sales path that's outlined by college, which is pretty ironic because <laughs> most people end up doing it. Right. Right. I, I would love to know the statistics um, on that too. And, and I, that's something I'm super passionate about is trying to help uh, some of those other folks get uh, get early experience to what you did, yeah. whether it's in high school or whether it's in college, because I don't know what the exact statistic is, probably 30 to 50% of whatever major you're in, you're going to be going into sales anyway. So why not teach those skills? Totally. anyway? Sales skills are life skills, right? Yeah. It blows my mind. Like there's no sales courses at university of Oregon. Um, I was super lucky that my brother worked in sales and was able to help me get an internship. But without that, like I'm in the process right now of helping my nephew look for an SDR internship and very few companies offer them. And I, I don't understand it. Like all these other career paths have these very linear tra trajectories. Like if you're in accounting, you start interviewing with KPMG and like your sophomore year. And it's like a very, very streamlined process. And then I feel like tech sales, you just kind of have to stumble in unless you have some like family exposure. And so I definitely think that some schools are starting to catch on and, and develop sales programs, but I think it's a big gap in the industry. I think it will hopefully change. Yeah, no, absolutely. Well, it, it's people people like yourself who who are out there in, in helping to promote that and, and show the importance of that and helping those kids in doing that, uh, doing that as well, which is going to be the ultimate driver. So, so kudos for you. Now, okay, so you had this experience. You're starting to get some of that early foundation of being a seller, and then you find yourself in an SDR role at Gong. First and foremost, what Gong is one of the, the hottest SaaS uh, tools in the uh, in the industry now. What is it like to yeah. work at Gong? Oh, so it's actually interesting because I, I didn't go straight to Gong out of college. I worked at a really small healthcare software startup uh, as an SDR, and honestly, like I liked my job and I thought it was I thought it was good. But I had a buddy, Jake Sims, who's still at Gong. Um, he's a really, really talented seller and he's one of my best friends from college. And he calls me, he's like, dude, I know you have a job and I know you like your job, but you have to check Gong out. Like you'd be doing, doing yourself a disservice if you didn't check it out. And honestly, I kind of like begrudgingly put my name in the hat and, and decided to interview with no intention of leaving really. I was like, all right, Jake says I have to check it out. I have to check it out. And so the second step in the interview process was a mock cold call with two SDR managers at Gong. And so you give like a five minute mock cold call. They give you feedback, you apply the feedback, and then you mock call again. Well, I, I took the feedback they gave me in that interview into the job I had. And the next day I booked more meetings on the phone than I ever had in that role. And that moment I was like, oh my God, like I got to go to Gong. Like if I'm getting that level of coaching and development in the interview process, I can't even imagine what I'll actually get as an employee. And so from that day forward, it was like, no, looking back, I was, I was a gongster. So yeah, that's how I ended up there. I was super lucky. I had a friend like force me into it <laughs> and I'm so grateful for that because it's completely changed. Like I think my career and that trajectory, but that's how I, I, I wish I could say like, Oh, I studied the market. I saw this rocket ship coming. I saw the trend. No, no, no. I just had like a, a really good friend shove my face into the gong. Oh, don't tell that story. It. it wasn't your friend. It was you're this visionary that you knew gong was. Yeah. <laughs> like revenue intelligence. Yeah. Yeah. You hit on a really interesting point that I think not a lot of teams are, are doing enough of, or not leaders, is actually sitting down and trying to coach your teams on how they could do things better. You mentioned that you got that really great in the interview process, but what do you think SDR managers need to be doing doing better in the first place to really sit down and help 
develop their teams and instead of just saying, hey, go get more meetings, go do more emails, go do this. Like what tactical things do leaders need to do better to help their SDRs or BDRs get into a better uh, place for success? Yeah, it's a really hard question to answer because I think the reality is bandwidth is super limited for frontline managers. They've got big teams. They've got to manage, you know, running one-on-ones and leadership meetings and all this stuff. And so I think it's pretty difficult to find the time needed to really diagnose the problem or the skill gap across your team and then spend time doing that. I'm very fortunate at Gong that we have like data behind it. So I'll give a quick example. I was like three months into my role at Gong. I knew the talk tracks. I knew the objection handles, like tactically and contextually, all of the skills were there, but I was still converting people on the phones at a lower clip than like two of the top performers on my team. And it was driving me crazy. But my manager pulled me in the gong and showed me that my patient score was a 0.3 when the top performers were 0.8. So she was able to quickly diagnose, like you're interruptive, you're cutting people off. We fixed that. And then my conversion rate jumped 10% the next month. So I think the first thing is if you're an SDR leader and you don't have the necessary tool set to quickly diagnose problems across your team. That's like step one is like, you need help. You can't rely on manually listening in on calls to start to diagnose these gaps. And then the second thing is less from a leadership perspective, but as an SDR, I think you have to recognize like if your only source of progression and development is coming from your manager, then you're not putting in the, the necessary amount of work. Like you have to go out of your way to own your development. So maybe that means having time with an AE once a week to work on skills, or maybe that list, that means listening to a podcast or reading a book, whatever that looks like, can't just rely on what the company and what your manager is providing in terms of progression, because it, it inevitably won't be enough. Yeah, that's fantastic. I think it's really important. I know you were mentioned, you know, you mentioned uh, by book back here, start with why is, is you're, you're jumping into the uh, jumping into some more books now too. I think it's really important that we, we can't just focus on like, you know, it, the, the, and this is a lot of what I'm hearing too from a lot of successful leaders. It's you need to go out there and you need to, um, or the most hungry reps are going to be the ones who are going to go out and try to get more, even if they are getting the best support. So, so totally. uh, obviously you've been a top performer at Gong. Uh, if, if you look at JC's LinkedIn, I mean, it's like you have to scroll a couple of times, I think, to get through all of the over 100% uh, months that you had, both as an SDR and, uh, and an AE. But now, outside of everything that you mentioned around the owning your own development and having leaders who are who have the right technology to ultimately help dictate what they're going to be doing, what else do you believe led to all of your success at Gong as an SDR? Yeah, um, a few things. First of all, I'm obsessed with winning and I'm super competitive to a fault, to a point where like I need to work on it. It's definitely tiptoes that border of unhealthy obsession. Um, but I, I really do pride myself on like being on the top of the leaderboard and whatever I'm doing. Um, and I think what I'm proud of is in terms of what I did as an SDR is I didn't necessarily orient myself around where I would finish on the leaderboard in terms of validated meetings because there's a lot of external factors there, right? Like, do they show up? Does your AE flip it? That whole thing. But I made a decision very early on, like every single week, I'm going to be number one in terms of most calls made non-negotiable so that was the first i think step in, in becoming successful as an sdr was like i was not gonna let anybody make more calls than me right and so i know that the answer is never like just make more calls but for me that was the big part of it like have more at bats than anyone else on the team and then the second part of it is like and people laugh and think this is cringy when i say it but i love cold calling i think it's fantastic like the idea that you can call somebody and interrupt their day 
like think about this just out of context like somebody doesn't know you they don't want to talk to you and they pick up the phone and five minutes later they are agreeing to take a 45 minute meeting with you and your ae like just the power of that i think is so fascinating and so i, I really do love cold calls and i pride myself on being good at them so there's a combination of making more calls than anyone else and becoming obsessed with being the best cold caller possible that led to my success i think roughly 90% of my meetings were booked via cold call. Yeah. And I, I'm seeing a lot more, we're seeing a lot more of that as well with, with these email rates dropping. I think that, it, you know, you see more uh, content on LinkedIn about uh, the importance of really being good at cold calls because it's a, it, it's really an art that that's definitely the best way that I'm able to book meetings as well. And um, I think it's really interesting that when you have those, those uh, outbound skills of, of being able to, you know, to your point of, of interrupting their day, acknowledge that you're interrupting their day, acknowledge that it's only going to be a quick moment to determine if we should continue talking, right? There's a number of different skills that we could dive, you know, that's probably, we could maybe dive into that later if we have some time. But uh, the point being is that phone skills are crucial, especially in this day and age. So, um, and to the other, the other point that I love JC that you mentioned is what you're doing is you're focusing like, Hey, I may not have the highest convert rate or may not have this connection rate, but I am focusing on what I could actually do, focusing on the outputs and understanding over time that that those outcomes are going to yeah. happen as a result of that good uh, of that focus. Any other thoughts on that? Yeah, I think, and I think um, to the first point you made, like the importance of cold calls. Um, I don't have a crystal ball by any means, but when I see things like Chat GPT and Jasper start to come into the market, I think it's going to be exponentially harder for emails to stand out because now we're going to have to not only compete with other talented AEs and SDRs, but, but AI that's writing pretty fantastic emails. And so I kind of envision inboxes just becoming this like wasteland. And that's why I think cold calls will continue to be more and more critical in, in sales cycle. Uh, and then to that second point, I think it's so important in every role is like identify the controllables, controllables and hone in on those. If you look at the economy today, like there's so much headwinds that are completely out of our control. So like why spend time stressing about like, you know, is inflation rate gonna cause my deal cycles to get long? Like, like you can't control that. So just hone in on the things that you are 100% controlling. And if you maximize those, then you trust that you'll get the best results you can. I, Easier I, said I, than done. And I'm definitely guilty of like slipping back into the other mindset, but I'm, I'm working on consistently reminding myself like hey, see, this so is so much I can actually impact. This is group therapy because I think every single person or most sellers that I do, because we want to be so successful and we're working so hard day in and day out to book these meetings and then have this good conversation. And like, it takes so much to even get to the end of a deal cycle to where, it, you know, there, there's so much so often where, oh, hey, we actually had a, a pivot in our business and we're, we're going to have to push three mm -hmm. or four months or, hey, we, we really did a deeper dive into our budget. and We don't we don't actually have the ability to, to take on more tools right now. Right. There's so many things that are going on that are outside of our control. The example I love to use all the time is you can't control the weather. Like I'm not going to be upset if I go outside and say, oh man, it's raining today. I'm going to beat myself up over it. Yeah. I, couldn't, I couldn't do anything differently to control that. What I could control is I could put on my raincoat, I could put on my hat and mm -hmm. I could do what I need to do, right? Um, but point being is like, we need to try to disconnect from that. But again, when, when we're trying to do all these things so that we can make a good living for our family or, or tying everything back to our why, it starts to get personal. So that's where, that's where the, um, the, the, the difference is for me. And, um, and JC, I'll have to send you a check for, for the therapy here as well. Cause uh, I appreciate the <laughs> chatting about this out loud and for everybody else listening as well. Let us know if you're, if you're facing this as well, um, in the comments is below.
Now let's talk, let's move a little bit further into, into your career. Even as you were, uh, even as an SDR at Gong, you started taking on some enablement sessions, right? You, you were helping some of your new hire colleagues, whether it's BDRs or AEs with uh, a cold calling mentality class or how to utilize pers- uh, physical gifting and prospecting or, or how to personalize mm-hmm. email at scale, right? Why is it so important to get involved with some of those things, even though, you know, like you're not a leader right now, but why is it so important to, to get into some of those things and lead when you're maybe not necessarily a leader in title? Yeah. Uh, it's interesting before this show started, you and I were chit chatting and talking about how busy we are and how full your plate is. And we, we mentioned the show and you're like, well, this is what fills me up, right? This is, this doesn't feel like work. Like this is a reprieve from everything else I'm doing. And that's exactly how I feel about like enablement and helping other people get better. Like I get way more satisfaction out of that than closing a deal. It's 100% what like really, really gets me going. And so it was honestly like, a really great part of my week whenever I'd run those sessions and it's something that I just love doing. And so, um, first of all, when I feel like I have something that's working and it's worth sharing, like why would I not want to spread that across the team? It'd be selfish to not do so. And second of all, when I help somebody like, like for example, I book a meeting via cold call. Great. I help somebody work on their cold call closing and they take that into their cold calls and book a meeting and tell me that, like that lights me up. And so kind of two things, like I felt like I've identified some things that are worth sharing. And then second of all, I get so much fulfillment out of helping other people get better. I just love doing it. And so for a while I thought I wanted to end up in enablement because I get so much satisfaction out of that. I've now realized like there's so many ways to do that in a sales role that I don't need to pivot into enablement. I can still check those boxes, but that's, that's the why behind it. No, I love that. And you can still hone your skills. You can still be a seller and still teach what you're still enable others by that. And too, I, I've always found such a, a great joy in being able to, uh, uh, to help other people succeed as well, because then number one, it validates that, you know, what you're talking about, know, know what you're doing, but it ultimately doubles down on even those days when, you know, you're doing those same things that you're teaching. And if it may not be working necessarily, you still know like, Oh, well, I helped this person do this and it's helped me in the past. I need to just stay on this track or maybe I need to iterate a little bit further. Um, let's, so let's talk about uh, the, the iteration point as well. I know obviously um, you know, some of those courses that you had were, were uh, how to personalize email at scale. And before the show, we were talking about how, uh, and, and as you mentioned before with the chat GPT stuff, email inboxes are getting absolutely uh, over flooded right now. And, and it's tougher than ever, even, even from six, 10, 12 months ago, to run a sales mm-hmm. process or get emails opened or, or whatever the case is. You could either hide behind, oh, the economy's bad and there's nothing else we could do or we could iterate and try to get better. What, what are some of the changes that you've seen over the last six, six 10, 12 months? Um, and, and what are some of the changes that you've needed to, to make for yourself to continue that, that high success that you've had? Yeah, do you want me to hone in from like a prospecting perspective or full deal cycle as far as what's changed? Let's start the, prospecting. The let's start prospecting, and then we'll talk about how the deals go. Yeah, um, specifically around emails. I think what has happened, honestly, tangential to what's happened in the economy, just what's happened in the industry is like five years ago, personalization was mentioning that somebody went to a college and making a reference to that. Let's go long. Like, that's not personal. Ducks, right? Yeah. Like, right? like <laughs> hey, notice you're a VP of sales. Like, no, that's not personalization anymore. And so I think that's the first thing is like 
as things get more competitive is recognizing that you have to go a layer deeper when it comes to personalization. So my approach to email personalization is that I need to incorporate two types of personalization. So first of all, I'm looking for something specific about that person. Actually, let me take a step back. Every time I click send on a manual, like net new email, my mindset is I want whoever's on the receiving end of that email to know very quickly that that was only sent to them. Like if there's any chance that whoever's reading the email thinks it was on you know, a list of 300 people that it was sent to, then I failed. You're so toast. My first, it's over. Yeah. Like I want it to be abundantly clear that I sent that email to them. But the challenge is how do you do that in a way that doesn't create a bottleneck in your process? And so my approach now is I try to incorporate two layers of personalization. The first is a personal one. Maybe they were on the rowing team in college. So I'm going to write an email related to how important it is for a rowing team to be in sync and how important it is for a sales team to have unified messaging, whatever that looks like. That's the first layer of a personalization. And the second one is business level. So if I can tie, if I can tie in the fact that they were on the rowing team in college with the fact that they're hiring for four new AEs and make a relevant email about how important it is as a coxswain to get the rowing team in sync, just like it is as a sales leader to get four new AEs in sync, like, that's what I view as a really good personalized email because it incorporates business level personalization and personal level personalization. So that's my general approach. The challenge is like that can't take 30 minutes. So I found a process where I can become pretty quick with this and I, I try not to get paralysis and analysis and make every email like perfect. I just want to incorporate those two pieces of personalization and then fire it off. Recognizing so, do you have, it's so quick question on this as well, because obviously there's, there's a big, some people like to have some type of like templated portion at the bottom of their email to where they tie everything back to their value proposition. Or some people just have put cadences together where it's all blank and they want to be able to personalize that specific one to each person. Where, where do you mm -hmm. fall on that from a prospecting perspective? Yeah, I have two different sequences I use. The first one is for my, I call them like tier one, my high priority accounts. Those sequences, not a single thing that goes out is going to be automated because I want to be hyper controlling of every single touch point. Like if it's a CRO at my biggest account, I don't want any kind of automation going their way. I want every touch point to be maximized. For a lot of my smaller accounts or like less priority accounts, it'll be one manual email. So still hyper personalized first touch and then a lot of automated follow up. So that's kind of my general approach there. I love that. I see that. I see that Alex uh, has a good question here as well. He's a BDR on, on the Lantern team as well. How do you manage the balance of personalization? You're not overthinking and spending too much time on that specific email. Yeah, that's the challenge, right? Is how do we do this at scale, not make it completely hinder our ability to get enough touch points out? I think the first thing is like the mindset. Like, I can't remember the exact stat, but I think on average it takes between 14 and 17 touch points to book a meeting. So when you have that context, you recognize like this one email probably is not going to be the make or break thing in me booking a meeting. This is one touch point in a long series of touch points that's going to ideally lead in a meeting. So when you have that level of understanding, like it doesn't seem as mission critical for that email to be 1000% perfect, it's easier to just click send. And then that's the second thing is realizing like the chances of, of that meeting being booked directly off that email are so low. I never viewed my ideal outcome for an email as an immediate reply with a meeting request. I viewed it as like, if this email is good enough to stand out in their inbox so that when I catch them on the phone, they recognize my name or I sound familiar, then that email did its job. So 
because my intention for an email wasn't to book a meeting and because I recognized this was one in many touch points, I never really had that fear of like, is this email perfect? Should I spend 15 minutes more personalizing it? Kind of like bang it out, make sure it's relevant, make sure it's personalized, click send and go on to the next one. Cool. I, I love that as well because so many people think like, like if, if they don't answer this message, everything is over and we're so doomed. Yeah. But really what it comes down to is like, hey, it, it, it's going to take a lot of touch points. You want to make sure that, that you're, you're personalized and relevant, but you're not spending six hours on an email that may oh, not really. get opened as well. You know, um, it, that's, uh, that's a big flaw that I see in a lot of teams. And I think that it's something that, you know, thank you so much for, for sharing that as well. Now, when you, you talk about tiering your customers, what it, what makes a tier one customer for you or how do you go about trying to pick that prioritized list? Because there's hundreds of uh, hundreds of thousands of companies that could buy, buy Gog or that there could be use cases for. But how do you specifically understand this is a target account that I want to go after? What, what are some of those triggers? Yeah, I think it definitely differs based on what you're selling. A few of the things we look for at Gong, first of all, size of, of the go-to-market team. So if they've got a ton of AEs, a ton of SDRs and CSMs, like that's probably a good fit. Second of all is industry, um, less relevant now, actually, like initially we were hyper-focused on SaaS, but we found so many applications outside of that for Gong that that's a little bit less relevant, like recruiting, staffing, those are all really good fits now too. Outside of that though, there's a few things I look for. First of all, if they have a bunch of people that are following my company on LinkedIn, that's like the ultimate green flag and a great sign. Second of all, if you go to their website and you see like a requested demo button, then I immediately know, okay, they've got somewhat of a similar sales motion to us where you, you get a demo with an AE, you probably get pats on, et cetera, et cetera. So that's also a green, green light. And then aside from that, it's just little things like, are they growing? Right. Are they, do they seem to be doing well? And if all those boxes are checked, like that's a top tier, amazing account, probably something I want to prioritize. I love that. I love that. Now let's, obviously those are all things that it, it takes to stand out as a, an SDR that, you, that you've seen, but ultimately those are all things that you, that you need to do to stand out as an AE as well. Talk to us about yeah. what that transition is because there's a lot of SDRs that, that are coming in and they're like, I want to be an AE. What do I need to do? I, I want to learn mm. from the best of the best SDR to AE. What, what was that transition like uh, from you from just the pounding the doors down to actually starting to close some of that business as well? It was so hard. Um, I've never had that level of like imposter syndrome or anxiety. It was, it was honestly for the first five months, I was miserable. It was, it was so hard. And, uh, I started to doubt myself. I'm like, can I even do this? Like, can I even be an AE? It was, it was honestly pretty, like pretty dark time in my career. I was just so stressed out. So I, I'm not the, maybe I'm a good person to ask this because I had a very like real experience in the transition. It did not come easy for me. Um, a few things that I do think ended up setting me up for success. Ultimately, first of all, I love the old adage, like don't dress for the job you have, dress for the job you want. And that was how I viewed my enablement and my preparation. So when I was like six or seven months away from promotion to AE, that's when I started working on discovery calls and doing mock calls, that kind of stuff. So that's my biggest advice for SDRs is like, start prepping to be an AE now. Like find time with an AE, pick their brain, put time on AE managers' calendars, start doing mock discovery calls, start learning how to demo. It will make you a better SDR, first of all. Like you'll have an immediate uplift in your performance as an SDR, and then you will feel more prepared when it is time to be an AE. That was the first thing. The second thing that I think 
and this might be controversial. Um, I came in with a pretty big ego because I thought it was a really good SDR. And so in hindsight, I would have lowered the ego and recognized like this is going to be a really hard transition. But what that led to was I did not ask for a lot of help on my deal cycles early on. Like, I'm like, I want to do this. I want to take these calls. I want to run these demos. And I lost a lot of deals that I honestly could have won if I had pulled in a colleague or a manager. And so initially, I'm like, you idiot. Why didn't you just ask for more help? We could have closed some deals, et cetera. But when I look back in hindsight, I'm actually so grateful that I didn't because I, I failed really fast. And I, I messed up so many deals really quickly. And then I fixed those mistakes and I learned from that. And I think that allowed me to really escalate and, and uh, accelerate my path to becoming like a really proficient AE because I didn't ask for a lot of help. And so I think there's a balance between like asking for help and making sure you're not leaning on your manager or your peers as crutches in a way that will hinder your development. No, I might be controversial. No, no, I, I love that too. And I think it's really interesting too, because I, you know, obviously a little bit different of a situation here. I'm, I'm currently the head of sales here at Lantern and we're an early stage company. Um, but I very much early on reflecting back on mine, I, I wish that I would have started to, to run more demos, right. Or, or start doing some of those conversations earlier. I was leaning more on our founder, David, to help with help with running that stuff. But then over time with that transition, I said, Hey, I want to own this, this demo process, but ultimately you had him on the phone to keep, to back up to back me up mm -hmm. with conversations. Now we're running them where David, he's not even on the first call with our customers. So it's opening up more time for him. So that was, yeah. that was my transition of the kind of the crawl walk run of let's start by watching somebody watching gong calls. I was going to say chorus, but I'm not going to say that. Well, I guess I just said that, but <laughs> watch your gong calls you know, from we'll work on that. what people have, uh, <laughs> have done previously. And then just start getting in there, start testing, start playing around and, and, and yeah. over time, right? You don't need to crawl to, to just go from crawling to running, right? You could have that transition. You have any, any other thoughts on that? Yeah, well, I, I do think it's important to recognize that like every AE role has a ramp period in place for a reason. You are not expected to come out of the gates carrying a full bag and being able to do to hit that. And so I think you should take advantage of your ramp and like, don't be afraid to fail during that time. Like there's a reason you've got low quotas for the first three or four months or whatever that is, because you're expected to fail, but like, just own that and be like, it's okay if I mess up a lot. And if I'm not closing big deals, there is a structure in place for me to get better over time for a reason. So don't put too much, like looking back, I'm so glad that I, I lost on these deals because I learned things from them that I've never made that mistake again. And thank gosh I did that on ramp when the numbers were not too big to hit. So I think just understand like it's a process and it takes time and it's really, it's really fucking hard and you got to embrace that. And so I tell every SDR at gong that's about to enter the AE process is like, just expect the fact that it's going to be really, really hard for a decent amount of months. And then you're going to come out the other side and you're going to crush it. But yeah. like having that level of expectation, like this is going to be tough kind of helps. No, it's very tough. Let's talk about the the change in mentality that you need to have as well with that. Because, you know, to your point of like, hey, you're you're this new AE and you're coming in here and you're like, I'm pounding my chest. I'm going to go crush some deals out. You get some down the line and then they fall off right at the end of the deal. Oh, on, on you over time as well. But, you know, to your point before, it's, you know, you were mentioning when we were warming up that those things are, are actually battle testing you and you're going to get stronger as a result of that. But when you're in the middle of it, right, when you're when you're in that first <laughs> couple months of that daunting, like, 
I have this imposter syndrome. I'm, I'm in a rut. I don't know what's going on here. How do you, what was your big push to get through that? Because a lot of folks, you know, uh, you know, in the times right now, whether you're just an SDR or you're an AE or, or whatever, it's tough on everybody right now. What's yeah. your, what was your experience there? Uh, I'd be insanely hypocritical just to sit up here and, and tell you I had a good mindset during it. I was freaking out. And honestly, like I, I give 1000% full credit to my manager, Jesse, like at one point I was, and, and what's ironic here is I never missed my number, but I was like barely getting there. And I felt like I just sucked. And I'd listen to some of the really talented sellers on my team's calls and be like, I'll never sound like that. I'm just freaking myself out. And so I sat down with my manager like four months in and I'm like, Jesse, are you worried about me? I just asked like the direct question. I'm like, are you, are you worried about me? Like, do you think I can do this? She's like, dude, what are you talking? You're doing fine. Like, but like just asking the transparent question to leadership, like I'd be worried here. <laughs> it was really helpful for me. So to be honest, and this was, that was kind of before, like I, I've become obsessed with mindset over the last, I would say eight, nine, 10 months. So this was all before that. And I wish I had had the, the skills I have now back then. So at the time I was a mess. I was freaking out. I didn't handle it well. Now, if I could go back and tell myself that I would just like remind myself, like you struggled at first as an SDR and then you crushed it. Like you have all these experiences in your past. David Goggins has this thing he calls his cookie jar where whenever things get tough, he's got like past experiences that he's conquered to pull out of his cookie jar and be like, if I got through that, I can get through this. And so I would have told myself, like, dude, just keep your head down. Keep working on the inputs. It'll come. At the time, I didn't have that level of confidence. So thankfully, we weathered the storm. Yeah, I mean, it gets really tough, though, right? And I think it's really important to have those things in place or or, or some of the things that have helped me anytime that I've gotten rut in my career is, is having a plan of like, all right, what is this prioritized list? You know, I have a whiteboard over here. So mm. it's what, what do I need to do? What Like coming into a day or the night before, what are those three, four, five things that I need to do to go succeed yeah. so that you don't think about what you need to do. It's just a matter of, Hey, this is the biggest priority that I have. If you need to confirm it with your management, your founder, whatever it is, make sure that everybody's in that same alignment and then yeah. ultimately start, start crushing that out as well. Do you have any other, you know, besides the, the cookie jar moments or, or trying to prioritize that any other ways yeah. to navigate these tough times? Because again, it, when you're in the midst of it, it is so brutal, man. It is really tough. Yeah. I think one of the things that helped me a lot and that I think is a solution to a lot of problems is more pipeline. Like, thankfully, I had this skill set as an SDR that when I came into the AE role at Gong, one, one thing I knew I could do as well as anyone was build pipeline. Like, I knew I could do that. And so even though I was struggling in my deal cycles and messing up demos and losing deals, I'm like, what am I really good at building pipeline? So... I was able to backfill for a lot of these deals that I was losing because I was consistently building pipeline. And so I think a lot of sales leaders would agree, like pipeline fixes most problems. I'm not saying it's the, the only fix, but you've got a lot of deals in the pipeline. Every deal you lose hurts a little bit less because you know you got more coming. So my biggest advice tactically to new AEs is like, never look at your pipeline and think you have enough. You never have enough. Keep building. Consistently, consistently get new deals in the funnel. I think that helped me a lot because it allowed me enough at-bats where I could mess up, lose a good clip of deals, but still have enough in the, in the works to end up getting to my number. A big fat pipeline solves a lot of business problems. A lot of problems. And it gives you a lot, yeah. of, uh, a lot of room for error. And then ultimately as well, once you do get that win rate up, then it's like, hey, 
then I should I could be able to forecast more. And then it, then that's when the the real the the rubber hits the road and you're really focused. What, yeah, that's that exactly what I experienced. Like Q1, I barely barely hit my number. Oh wait, no. Yes, Q1, I barely hit my number by like two hundred dollars. Literally, I I hit one hundred percent of my quota plus two hundred dollars. Like barely got there. Mm-hmm. Nothing changed like major between Q1, Q2, and Q3. But in Q2, I hit like 144%. In Q3, I hit like 250%. Like the pipeline build was consistent. And then all of a sudden, I started getting better at every stage in the funnel. And to your point, those win rates start going up. And if you consistently build that pipeline, you start seeing some numbers come in, which is exciting. And, and obviously, over time, you're, you're honing your process as well. And obviously, you know, uh, sales process change over time. But what, like, let's talk about your, you know, we're talking about mindset, we're talking about preparation. What is it? What does a day in the life look like for you right now? Of like, I, I know, you know, most AEs hopefully are still prospecting, right? What, how do you structure your day uh, to set yourself up for success? Yeah. Um, I used to be better at it. I've gotten a little bit, I, t- I just came back from two weeks off and I kind of got out of my rhythm, but my ideal day, um, Kelly Adams used to be a recruiter at Gong and she used to lead this on enablement session about eating your frog, which is essentially identify the one part of your day that you hate the most. Like what part of your job you despise the most, do that first thing in the morning and get it out of your way. You just call it like eating the frog first thing in the morning. My least favorite thing is getting those first touch emails out because they feel like mundane and redundant and and they take some time. So my ideal day would be the end of the day, I'm finding five to 10 people to put into sequence. I'm not emailing them. I'm not calling them. I'm just getting them into sequence. The next morning, first thing in the morning, I'm sending out those five to 10 net new emails that are personalized. Just get it out of the way. Check that box. The rest of the day feels easier. After that, it's hard as a seller because we got calls mixed in throughout the day. So it kind of depends on the day, how many customer facing calls I have. But my general rule is if I have an hour or more of free time on my calendar, I'm cold calling during that time. Like anything less than 45 minutes of free time, I feel like it's kind of hard to get in a rhythm for me cold calling. But if I have a free hour, I'm going straight into outreach, getting on my dialer and, and repping cold calls. So it's less structured than as an SDR when you don't have a ton of customer facing halls to block around. But that's kind of like the rough structure. For my day yeah, now. no, I think that's really important too. And I, I'm glad that you mentioned that as well. I know uh, Nick Sigelski, um obviously mentioned from 30 MPC is a, a huge eat the frog guy because over time it just sits on your desk and gets slimier and more gross over time. So just get it done, focus on, on crushing it out. And then uh, to your point, everything else feels better. And it feels so totally. good, when it, especially if you're overwhelmed or anxious or, or, or whatever's going on when you know that you're getting ahead of whatever it is in that day, it does make things so much easier. And you feel like, all right, if Mm. nothing else gets done today, I did this, I did the hard thing. And that motivates you to do more things as well. And then if you get get a couple of wins while you're prospecting, then that just puts more wind in your sail for that customer conversation that you have later on. Right. What's the importance of riding momentum for you? Oh, it's huge. And I I become obsessed with like atomic habits. I listen to a ton of podcasts on, mindset and all the stuff. And one of the things that I've adopted that I love is, is compiling wins early in the morning. So first thing I do every single morning without fail is I make my bed. Like that's just a tiny win that's in my control. The next thing I do almost every morning is either go for a run, hit the Peloton or work out like another win, check that box. Next thing I do is like, even though I work remote in a world where I could show up looking like a slob, 
take a shower, get dressed, like check that box. That's a win. And then if you go into your laptop and you hammer out the worst part of your day, which is net new emails, another win. And you're just riding this wave of momentum. So I'm a huge believer in compiling wins, especially early in the morning and just like getting off to a start where you feel productive. I think it's a very, very powerful snowball that can continue rather than waking up messy bed, not showered, roll up to your desk, ignore the thing you're supposed to do. Like it's just a, Slippery slope in that regard. No, I hear you, man. And, and I actually have a, and I won't pull it up now, but I have a, a to-do list in my phone and I put that check mark of, hey, wake up at this time. That's a check mark. That's a win, yeah. right? I woke up when I said I was going to do this. I'm going to make my bed or I'm going to go work out. That's another win, right? Yeah. Whatever those wins are over time, you, you look back at, you know, when you sit down at your desk at seven, eight o'clock, nine o'clock, whatever you're sitting down, it's wow, I have four, five, six wins already. Let's go. Yeah. You know, and it's, it's I, I do the same thing, way. except I do it on a physical journal the night before. I'm when I'm laying in bed, I'm like, what does success look like for tomorrow? Like, what do I want tomorrow to look like? So I'm actually thinking the night before, like, okay, I want to wake up this time, I want to do this workout, I want to so same, same mentality where it's like here's a physical list. And I'm sure you've read atomic habits, like the action of crossing something off or clicking a checkbox or putting a marble in a jar feels so good. So that I am a huge believer. I think we're on the same page with that. It's so fun. It's it's so it's such a little thing, but yet it's such a huge thing as well. So, and I'm so glad, obviously, with the success you've had at Gong so far. Um, it, it's a no brainer that uh, if you're not doing those types of things, or you feel like you're in a rut, or you feel like you need to get that momentum early on, um, you know, obviously the, the toughest thing when you're you're trying to push a rock is getting it started. So once you get it started, mm. it gets easier and easier over time. Now, something that you're you know t- taking your your mindset from. Uh, from from sales and in the some of the adversity that you faced in your life, now you're taking that and you're going to start running a marathon, right? Tell everybody about what this marathon running process looks like and ultimately uh, how how you get yourself in the right mindset for that, both physically and mentally. Because like you know, I'll go out and I'll run two miles and I'm like, right, there's no way. So to so think about thirteen, yeah. times, <laughs> it's mind boggling, right? But tell tell us a little yeah. bit about that journey. So I hated running my whole life and I've always told myself like, you don't have the body type for running. You just don't like it. Um, but I was listening to a podcast of, uh, I, I think it was David Goggins on Joe Rogan. And I'm like, holy shit, this guy's running 240 miles and I can't convince myself to, to run 26 one time. And so I just decided with my niece actually, which is really cool. She's a, she's at Duke in college. Um, we're like, let's do it. Let's sign up for the awesome marathon February 19th. And so I committed to doing it. I downloaded a program, like a marathon training program. And I just made the decision. I'm like, interesting. We we're, were talking about atomic habits. One of the biggest takeaways I had from that book was picking an identity. So instead of orienting myself around this goal, which is to run a marathon, instead I oriented, I oriented myself around an identity. I'm like, I'm going to be the guy that does not miss my training runs. Like whatever that little calendar on my app says, I'm going to do that day. I'm going to do that day. And so that's how I started. And I actually just went back the other day and looked at my first run. It was three miles at like a 12 minute pace because I had to stop three or four times. Like I literally could not run three consecutive miles. And then last Sunday I ran 20 miles at like an 820 pace. So it's just a process, just like everything we talked about. Do the inputs day after day week after week, and they start to compile on the wind. So yeah, wow, one month exactly until the, until the, the marathon, February 19th, we're one month away. 
That's so exciting, man. And, and it's really interesting too. It's like, this is a physical way, you know, obviously we can't, we can't always see it necessarily with, with work, right. Or if we could see that yeah. our numbers increasing or, or that happening, but when you take a physical example of, Hey, I'm running this yeah. thing and I could see those changes over time. It's really inspiring to, to take a step back. You know, even if you're, you know, you're, you're pushing full speed ahead right now, you feel like you're having a down month or something like that. Mm-hmm. You can look back and say, wow, look at everything that I have done. I could do this thing. And to the David Goggins point before it's like, that gives you more validation in what you're doing, right? Yes, I love that. And I think that when things are hard in other aspects of life, taking a physical challenge that's 1,000% in your control is more critical because you can have a day at work that you just get slaughtered for no fault of your own, right? Like the, the economy, this company's freezing spending, whatever. When you have something else you're working towards, and we just talked about compiling wins, like, if I have a six mile run scheduled and I nail a six mile run, that's something nobody can take away from me. It's in nobody else's control but mine. And that's like a win I can check off in my day. And so I think it's been so good for my mental health, health to have something outside of work that I can orient myself around and take pride in and, and track my progression. And it's been a really healthy reprieve from like being hyper fixated on where I'm on the dashboard or where I'm to quote or whatever that looks like. No, a thousand percent, man. Running has been a great release for me too. To just, you, you forget about everything else that's going on and you just focus on uh, on your thoughts or focus on what you're doing physically. And it, I mm-hmm. almost every single run I come back on, it's like, wow, okay, I feel good. I'm ready to go. And, and here's where my, you know, I, I'm just ready to move forward here. So I'm glad yeah. to hear it sounds like you have you have that uh, that as well. So even if you don't like running, I, I never really loved running, but now it's something, it's one of my favorite things that I look forward to over the course of a day. So um, yeah, my advice for people that don't like running is commit to running every single day for 10 straight days, no matter how sore you are. Do two to three miles for 10 straight days. Somewhere in that 10 days, I swear there's this hurdle you cross where you're like, oh my God, I really like running. And your body starts to crave it. And then you take a day off and your body's like, what's going on? Like, yeah. Why aren't we running? So that's my biggest advice. Like, If you, if you claim to hate running, but you kind of want to get into it, commit to doing 10 straight days. Your body will feel awful, but your mind will start to be like, oh, this feels really good. So... That's, 10 day challenge if you that's, want to get that's fantastic. It. Anybody who wants to join the, the, the JC 10 day challenge, hit them up on yeah, there. You go. I'm more than happy to help you there. JC, we're wrapping up already. Time flies so fast when you have such a great conversation. Uh, so again, I really appreciate it. One big question I love to ask every single guest on the show. The name of the show is keeping the lights on. What do you think in 2023 sellers need to do to keep the lights on for their organizations? Yeah, uh, I think it's been said a million times, but it's getting really comfortable selling to the CFO or creating powerful enough business cases that a CFO will approve of. Like, I think that is going to be the number one difference between last year and this year is the level of scrutiny. Every time a CFO signs a contract is going to go up. So you have to run a really, really tight process. And so I think that's, what's going to keep the lights on is orienting around really, really concrete business cases, getting CFO buy-in. And I, I think that, from a mindset perspective, the way I'm viewing this is like, what an immense opportunity to tighten my sales process and get good at this so that when the economy is better, we'd start blowing out numbers. So I think that's probably the number one thing. JC, that's phenomenal advice. For those who aren't comfortable in the C-suite, you better get comfortable if you want to still have a job in sales. <laughs> Everything's going to have to go there. Yeah. JC, thank you so much, man. Where could people more learn more about you and everything else you have going on? Um, follow me on LinkedIn. I'm not really famous or anything, so you can just message me. I'll respond. I, like, <laughs> I have a pretty small following. Uh, but the one thing, my, my one shameless plug is 
I'm actually running this marathon uh, in memory of my mom who took her own life when I was nine. And I have a GoFundMe up. We're raising money for suicide prevention. And that link will be open until February 19th, which is when the marathon is. I've already raised like over $3,000, which is crazy. So yeah, I set a goal for $1,000 and 48 hours later, we're at $3,000. So that's let's keep it going until race day. Would love to see that up like 5, 10K. It'd be phenomenal. So. Yeah, oh, absolutely, JC. I'm so sorry to hear about that. I've had some family affected by uh, by suicide as well. So, um, so absolutely, please make sure you're going to check out uh, that for JC. It's uh, anybody affected by that. It's an uh, an unbelievable thing. So, uh, more props to you. And I'm sure that's a big, powerful why and kind of pushing everything through here as well. How can people totally. learn more about uh, everything you have going on at Gong as well? Um, I think just LinkedIn, honestly, and and like don't hesitate to reach out. I think one of the coolest things about LinkedIn is. Within minutes, you can be networking with someone across the world in a different industry in a different role. I respond to everything on LinkedIn. So pop a message my way. I would love to connect. And uh, thanks for having me, Tyler. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode. And if you enjoyed the show, it would mean the absolute world if you went to Apple and rated and reviewed the show for me as well. Is This is a fantastic way to help grow the show and help to bring in fantastic guests and even more listeners to our tribe. So stay tuned for next episode and have a fantastic rest of your day.